Good morning. If we've not had the chance to meet yet, I'm Ricky. I'm pastor of Community Life here on staff with Dave and Gerald and Sharon and all of the crazies that you've seen hitting this stage this morning. It's a really good time. Uh, our teaching text this morning is going to be coming out of Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. We read, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech, and as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. This is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. I'll tell you the problem with the scientific knowledge that you're using here. It didn't require any discipline to attain it. You read what others had done, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you patented it and packaged it and put it on a lunchbox, and now... This is an impassioned speech by mathematician and chaos theorist, Dr. Ian Malcolm, also famous for the phrase, life finds a way. He's a character in Jurassic Park, guys. He's not, it's not a real doctor. <laughs> it's Jeff Goldblum. He does a great job. Now, whether it's a T-Rex born in a lab or Frankenstein's monster in the stories we tell or it's the atomic bomb, the internet, or the iPhone, there's a human proclivity for messing around with things and making something happen before we really even fully understand what it is we've done. And that thing rises up, turns around, and bites our heads off. Now, you could call that proclivity many things, but the best biblical word for it might be magic. You see, in biblical times, people had idols of stone, they had amulets, they, they would say a spell or two in an attempt to create more ease and control in their lives. But the problem was, is as they tried to make these things happen, these things always cost more than they gave in the long run. And though the tools may have changed, it may be, you know, cell phones and satellites nowadays, the, the method, the goal, the worldview is the same. It's magic. You know, the closest thing in our recent memory that's close to the Tower of Babel is probably the building of the atomic bomb by Robert Oppenheimer. Right, Christopher Nolan just recently made a film about this, and it was really, really well done. And in it, he presents Oppenheimer as this guy who has no real convictions. He dabbles in eight million different things. He's brilliant, but he's completely unrooted. He's what C.S. Lewis would have called a man without a chest. Until at one point in the film, one of his friends turns to him and says, do you know what you believe anymore? Do you even know what you believe anymore? 
And then the film ends, and this is just Nolan's take on it, I don't think this happened in history, it ends with Oppenheimer stating something that he does believe in. He believes that he built a bomb that destroyed the world. Not because it ignited the atmosphere of the entire planet like they thought it might at one point, and not just because of the devastation that was wracked on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but because the whole world order had changed because of what this man had done. That's what God is trying to stop in the Tower of Babel incident. When he says nothing they do will be impossible for them, it's not like he's threatened. He's like a concerned parent saying they don't know where this ends. They don't know what's coming down. They don't know how they're going to hurt themselves and other people. Because trying to create more control and ease than is our due, trying to be gods and not people, trying to be superheroes and not servants, always ends up hurting us in the end. And the gift, the beauty of Jesus' invitation to come to him, all who are wearied and burdened, is to accept nothing more and nothing less than being a person. Not a God. Not a superhero. A heart, soul, mind, strength made, designed for love. So today, we're going to explore our like techno-magical worldview. It's a tale of two cities, and then we'll talk about the promises of control and ease. And then we'll look at what the Bible means when it talks about personhood, what it means to be a person and not a God. And then I'll end with just a few tips about how, how to use our technology. So just a caveat as we get started, my first draft of the sermon I gave to Dave Dave said, it's like, do you want us all to become like Hutterites or something like that? Like Amish? Like, do you just hate technology? It's like, this is not an anti-technology sermon. I praise God in the morning that I am born in an age where I have a toilet and not a chamber pot. Amen? Okay? We're into this. In fact, I think it's part of our calling as human beings to, to make stuff, to do things. The, the first commandment given to human beings in Genesis is what? Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful. Make things that encourage the flourishing of people and creation. Like, I believe in heaven there's going to be some technology. There's going to be, like, solar-powered laser beam guitars and stuff like that going on. It's going to be awesome. I don't think this capacity for making things ends. It's what we're made for. But the problem is... That capacity can be used in a godly way or in an earthly way, right? Because the things that we make are not neutral. Everything that we make, we make with an end, with a vision, with a goal in mind. So we imprint upon that thing our desires, our hopes, our beliefs, our worldviews. And what was the mission statement of the Tower of Babel? They say it. The people say it on the plain of Shinar. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the earth. That's their goal, just to be great, just to look awesome, to take over things. And that's the problem. You know, Augustine, a fourth century pastor, wrote this beautiful masterwork called The City of God where he compared how humans make things in an allegory, a tale of two cities. There is an earthly city and there is a heavenly city. And most of the technologies that we use have the goals of the earthly city. They were made with the primary goal, usually just of making money, not necessarily of 
are flourishing, right? Like Silicon Valley has a different vision of peace and shalom than Jesus does. That's why we need to talk about this stuff. To, to use a crude analogy, it's like we're playing with other people's toys when we use these things. Now, if you're here and you work in tech or you're like studying computer science, God bless you. We need you there, okay? Don't, don't mishear me. Making things is part of what we're made to do. And if we have people who have a, vi- a biblical vision of human flourishing working in these fields, the world is going to become a better place. But for the rest of us, we've got to pay attention to using these things, being wise as serpents and innocent as doves, living in this technical, magical world without living of it. So how do we do that? Well, first, we need to understand it a little bit. And there's two promises that come with magic and with technology, those who hold the kind of magical worldview in their building of tech, and that's control and ease. So ease. There's this great bit by a comedian named Louis C.K. He's disgraced. He fell from grace, but he did it on a talk show once. He was talking about living in the modern world, and he said, you know, you look around, and everything is amazing, and nobody's happy. He uses the example of the first time Wi-Fi came onto planes, okay? He's like sitting there, he's on a flight, and then all of a sudden, the steward's like, hey, now you can plug your laptop into the internet. And he's like, are you kidding me? Like, not only do I get to fly, but I can be on the internet while I do it? And like, not two weeks later, he's sitting beside somebody on a flight, they open their laptop, they start typing around, and they're just getting like more and more frustrated. And then the steward comes on and is like, ah, you know what? Sorry, guys, the internet isn't working today. And the guy beside him literally curses out loud. Like, are are you kidding me? And he's like, dude, you don't get to use the World Wide Web on your throne in the sky. Like, Like, do you know how long people have dreamt of being where you are and that's all you can think about? Or like when the iPhone first comes out, right? He's like, you see people walking down the street and then all of a sudden they like throw it into a wall because the loading time is too long. And he's like, that's shooting a signal to space, man. Like, do you know what's going on here? Everything's amazing, but we're all kind of miserable. Why is that? Well, the, the promise of kind of the magical worldview is ease. It's the relieving of burdens. It's power, the ability to change things without being changed ourselves. And in many ways, our modern world has delivered on this and then some. Is a professor from the University of Manitoba, Vaclav Schmil. Um, he's written a book called How the World Really Works. He's an energy specialist. He, like, crunches the number on the energy we use. And he says the average person around the globe uses the equivalent energy of 60 human beings, six zero human beings working full-time around the clock. In rich places, that number climbs to the equivalent of 240 people. Now, if that doesn't make sense, imagine if you still had to go out and chop wood to heat your home. If you had to, like, go take a brick of ice out of a lake and keep it in a shed, right, to, like, keep your food cold. How many of you ate a banana today? If you had to cultivate and grow a banana without fossil fuels and somebody had to, like, bring that banana to you, how many people are involved in that chain? That's one piece of fruit in your home. Like, we live the lifestyle in terms of energy usage that is the equivalent of medieval kings and queens. But if I asked you, do you feel like you're living like the sovereign of a small medieval nation? Probably not, right? 
Because it could always be a little bit easier. You could always have just a little bit more. You know, Andy Crouch, who basically sponsored the sermon with his book, uh, The Life We're Looking For, fantastic book, should check it out. He talks about this. He says, you know, technology offers us relieved burdens, but at the same time, and this is why it kind of makes us a little bit sick, it also reduces our capacity, right? Like, I cannot grow a garden and pickle and preserve it like my great-grandmother can. Right? My great-grandmother like, had a legit cellar right? that she went down to to get vegetables that she had canned to live off of. Right? My great-grandfather worked with leather and could rebuild furniture. I've helped butcher a couple animals, but I don't think I could like, skin and butcher and break down a cow for you this afternoon. Right? I lose my attention span with every single Instagram reel. I can't memorize things because of the Google search bar. Right? It has relieved our burdens, but in relieving our burdens, it has reduced our capacities. It's reduced our ability to do the things that are human. Control. Who's watched iRobot? Or like Battlestar Galactica? Who are my like BSG fans? Like one of you, thank you. Okay. It's for the super nerds. Uh, AI, Terminator. Right? There's this trope in science fiction. Humans create robots, robots enslave or kill humans, and round and round it goes. Now, I believe that science fiction, because I am a nerd, is a little bit prophetic most of the time. A lot of times it's actually talking about the present, not the future. And we were promised by technology, we were promised control. Control over our bodies, control over nature. But in the end, those very things that offer us control turn around and control us a little bit. They demand something of us. They take something from us. And in ancient times, you know, this was your, your stone idols, your amulets, your spells, right? The idols demanded sacrifice. Like, if you wanted to live well in Roman society, you had to be on, like, the good books with, like, eight or nine different gods at any given moment. It was like a part-time job, Right? And nowadays, we have technologies that allow us to do things that we could have only imagined in the past. But every piece of technology that we introduce demands something of us. We've got to maintain it. We've got to store it. Right? Instagram, Facebook, they promised us that we'd be able to connect with people like never before. But they also demand our attention. They also send us pinging notifications nonstop, make us feel like we're missing out unless we're engaged in that medium. And even more so for those who are lower on the social ladder. I had, a, I had a friend in university who worked at an Amazon warehouse. The conditions he described were like almost slavery, honestly. Every single movement of his was watched. If something went wrong, if he missed a package, he was like penalized for it. Every break was clocked in down to the second. Friend who worked in a call center who had the same experience. Now, Andy Crouch puts it this way, the promise of technologies, now you'll be able to do this. It slices, it dices, it changes your baby's diapers for you. But now you'll have to. Now you've got to change the oil, now you've got to store the thing, now you've got to get the winter tires. It promises you control, but turns around and ends up controlling you a little bit too. Now the beauty of the gospel over against this worldview, is that Jesus Christ does not lie to us. That may seem like an obvious thing to say, but he doesn't. 
Nowhere that I can find in my Bible does he promise us ease or control. Nowhere. There are people who might tell you it's the case. I can't find it. In fact, if you go to the Gospel of John, he turns to his disciples and he says, in this world you will have blank. Fill it in. Trouble. A guaranteed promise from our Savior. In this world, you will have trouble. It will be toil. It's going to be hard sometimes. But take heart because I've overcome it. I didn't go around it. I went through it. And that's the path for you as well. Because deep down, the, the root burden we place on ourselves and this worldview that we have that you could call magical is that we want to be gods and not people. We want to be superheroes and not servants. We want to have ease and control on an unprecedented level. And though the Bible might not talk about the internet, it does have a lot to say about what it means to be a person. My Old Testament professor used to put it this way. You could almost imagine it like an organizational chart. At the very top of everything is God, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity. Utterly perfect in every way. Depending on your translation of Psalm 8, a few rungs down from that are people. And then a few rungs down from that are animals. And if a person just gives in to their base desires, just follows their belly, they end up becoming like an animal. But interestingly enough, if that person tries to transgress the boundary between them and God and take their place at the center of everything, they become an animal as well. Why? Because if you put yourself above God, you're not following anything but what you want. You're not following anything but your desires. Try to be more than human, and you inevitably end up less than. And this is demonstrated the best, I think, in Daniel chapter 4. Um, it's there in the Tower of Babel as well, but this is, a, I think, a story that mirrors it very well. And it's the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar's king of Babylon. He is the big deal of the day. And he is out on his balcony, and he is, like, strutting, Okay. He's looking out over his kingdom, and he starts pontificating on how powerful he is, how wonderful he is, how strong he is. And we read in verse 31 of Daniel 4, even as these words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And it happens. Nebuchadnezzar crawls around like an ox, eating grass for either seven days, weeks, months, or years. The, the translation's unclear, right? That's William Blake's painting of him. Really kind of him, isn't it? But at the end of that time, At the end of that time, Nebuchadnezzar's sanity is restored to him. And what does he say? First thing he does, he gets up and he praises God. He says, God is the one who's king. God is the one who gives authority and takes it away. Right? Reaching for godhood, he falls to animalhood to climb back up to personhood. The moral, try to be more than human, and you inevitably end up becoming less than human. Andy Crouch puts it this way. You cannot take advantage of a superpower and fully remain a person in the sense of a heart-soul-mind complex designed for love. This is not an unfortunate side effect of superpowers or a flaw that could be overcome with future improvements. Try to be more than, you end up less than. Because you might remember in Genesis, God looks at the first human beings and he says, 
this is a really good rough draft. Like, this is, this is a good start. Things are really going to get better, right? Good hardware, but it's going to need a software update. No. He looks down on these naked, weak, defenseless, fragile, feeble, and fickle things that also have the power and creativity and beauty and imagination that will shape the earth. He looks down on them as they are and says, this, this is very good. The life that Jesus offers us is accepting that very good. It's saying it is good to be a person. It is good to stay within the boundaries of my humanity. It's good to have to do the dishes. It's good to have to change the diaper. It's good to have to work through things every once in a while. So just as we move forward, a couple tips on working with this technological world. And we're going to use that framework that I think Andy Crouch has done so brilliantly, where heart, soul, mind, strength, complex is designed for love. Right? So how do we recapture that, particularly when it comes to like our screens and computers and phones? Well, first, re-engaging the heart. I think Louis C.K. is right in that little bit he does. I think it, it hits us because we do realize that if we stop and think about it, things are pretty awesome, right? Like, to eat this afternoon, you don't have to go out into the bush with a bow and arrow and, like, strike down a wild beast. Some of you might because you're weird. That's fine. Like, God bless you. Bless your heart. But you don't have to, right? In fact, in a room this size... A lot of you would be dead if you weren't born now. Like, just straight up, right? If it wasn't for C-sections or dental surgeries or penicillin, right? We live in an amazing time, and we have a choice. We have a choice every time this world doesn't live up to our expectations. When, like, the loading time is taking too long, we can fling the laptop across the room. I've done it. You've done it. Okay? Safe place. Right? When you're stuck in traffic, you can, like, complain about it. Or you can stop and think for a second that, like, I'm doing something people have dreamt of for centuries. Like, I have been given the amazing gift and responsibility of occupying an age with more power, with more ability than has ever happened before. Our hearts are sick with this desire for more, 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 and really the solution is gratitude. It's wonder. It's awe. It's thanking God. Right? And I think that's part of what I'm trying to say with this, is not, not throw all the technology away, but to use Paul's wonderful little piece of uh, wisdom from Philippians. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Right? See what's good. Earlier in that passage, it says the way to deal with anxiety is to, to pray and to bring your supplications before God, but to do it with thanksgiving, to be grateful. It enlarges our hearts. Second, our souls. There's this um, author and thinker, Jefferson Bethke, who I think is really good at just like designing his life around following Jesus. And he's got this rule. For one hour a day, for one day a week, and for one week a year, all of his devices are off. That's one hour a day, one day a week, one week a year, off, gone. Now, whether it's Jesus and the Gospel of Luke, every time things get complicated, like running away to the desert to be alone, 
or it's like the monks and preachers and spiritual teachers through the 2,000 years of Christian tradition, everybody agrees you cannot grow a soul without silence and solitude. You cannot grow a soul in nonstop noise. You just can't. The soul grows on airplane mode. Now, for some of us that might be unrealistic, you're like on call or something. So another option that I think is kind of equal and fantastic is to turn your smartphone into a dumb phone. This is a John Mark Comer thing, right? Like, literally pull that thing out and Mary Kondo that sucker, right? Like, open up the app and be like, does this app, does this device, does this piece of this equipment actually make me a better person? Does it actually encourage love and flourishing in and along the lines of the way Jesus designs it? Is this good for me? If not, if your Instagram app causes you to sin, tear it off. Throw it away. Do you know the rest? Now, if you were to ask me, like, I'm not perfect at this, but if you were to ask me, if we were sitting down and having coffee, and you would say, Ricky, what's the most significant decision you've made for your discipleship in the last five or six years? Like, what, what's been, like, the turning point for you in this season? I would say it's when I started to learn the lesson that my attention is my greatest commodity, and that there are multi-billion dollar organizations out there trying to steal it every single day. And that I can design my life in such a way to protect myself from having my pr- most precious commodity stolen. More than anything, that's been, that's been the biggest change I've made and it has made the biggest difference. I literally treat myself like a 10-year-old boy sometimes. Like, Ricky, you get this much screen time. No, put the cookie down, right? Like, go play outside, go read a book. It's good for you, okay? We don't stop being kids. Uh, Next, the mind. The advice here is just don't Google it. Just don't. See what happens. I've been messing around with that dumb phone thing with not having a web browser on my phone for the past three weeks. It, like, literally made me convulse when I first started doing it, (laughs) right? But, like, don't Google it, right? It's amazing when you have to, like, walk to another room and turn on a computer to search something, how few things you search, right? Like, oh, what was that actor's name again? Who cares, like, really, who cares, right? Like, oh, man, was it like three tablespoons or three teaspoons of soy sauce in this recipe? I don't know. Put a couple in and figure it out, right? It's probably going to be okay. It wasn't, but that's fine. <laughs> God gave us minds. He gave us a capacity to think. And some of you in this room are educators, and I've talked to you. And you've said the outlook is not getting better when it comes to the standard coming out, right? Our devices have changed the way we think. They've, They've helped us lose our ability to memorize, to remember, to sit quietly and ponder something. But we were made to do it. It's good for us. It helps us in the long run. And finally, our strength. Jesus' parable of the talents we can't summarize it right now, but go and read it if you're not familiar with it. Uh, many of you might be. But it's a story in which Jesus essentially teaches us that our talents, our abilities, our strength, our muchness are given to us on a use-it-or-lose-it basis. If you do not use your strength, you lose it. If you do not work the muscle, it shrinks. And that ha- that's the case for every one of our abilities. We were designed to work hard, 
You can go and read James later today or Romans 5, and you'll hear them actually being pumped about when people suffer. Because they say, you know what, when that suffering comes, it makes you persevere, and that builds hope, and that builds courage, and that builds strength, which you were made to have. It's like our whole lives in the world we operate in have like one of those video game choose your difficulty menus, right? Like you go to the cupboard, and it's, there's an instant pot or there's a Dutch oven. There's a 15-minute or there's a two-hour, Right? You, you, like, watch some show that has some new diet fad or, like, some new supplement that's supposed to make you feel better. It's like you can do that or you can just, like, eat a salad and go on a run, right? There are hard ways and easy ways to do things. And if we want to be people in this world, we actually sometimes have to choose the hard way. We actually often have to choose the hard way. Uh, Cal Newport's got a book called Digital Minimalism, and one of the ways that he, I learned from him is he talked about our leisure Right? He said, you know, our, a lot of times we just like want to zone out, but it's not good for us. We're made to do things that are challenging with our leisure. And I took it seriously, and I took up fly fishing. Now, fly fishing has a lot of technology involved with it, okay? It is a little bit magical sometimes. Like, when you talk to some of the people, you're like, are you wizards? Like, what? Like, this sounds... Like, yeah, anyways. But, like, a, a rod has a lot of science in it. But I tell you, when you start flinging that thing, and that hook ends up in your neck and that, like, line is wrapped around your feet, like, that's not magic, guys. There is nothing magical about it. But it's so, like, the way you feel when you get back from a day of trying something new that's a little bit difficult versus the nine-hour Netflix binge, I think that's one of the biggest hacks, actually. Pay attention to how you feel after you do something. Like, when you get off Instagram, how do I feel? Do I feel encouraged? Is my heart grown? Do I feel like I want to go out and love God and love people? Or do I feel like I want to lay down in a pit of existential despair, right? For me, it's usually the latter. It might not be for you, but that's part of this, is learning to pay attention and learning to activate your strength when you need to. So as we come to the end of today, this sermon, but also this whole series, I just want to take us back to the words that we were focusing on. It's in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. It says, come to me, this is Jesus speaking to us, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. As we've been going through this series, the thing that I've noticed and the thing that's really been speaking to me is time and time and time again, including today, we've had to talk about pride. We talked about it in anger. We talked about it in forgiveness. We talked about it in fear. We talked about it today when we talked about wanting to be gods and not people. Over and over again, the problem seems to be my ideas about what's good for me and my ideas about where I should go and what I should do and how important I should be. Yeah, I, I went to Trinity Western University on the coast, and Trinity is like where the super Christians go. I don't know if you know this. Not all of them are super Christians, but like a lot of the super Christians go, right? Like, like I had a friend who was 22 and had already started an international nonprofit to stop sex trafficking. I was learning how to boil hot dogs and show up to class on time <laughs> at 22, Okay. So needless to say, there are moments in our culture and the way that it celebrates greatness and in the way that, honestly, it gives us a false vision of genius 
We can sit and we can just feel like we're kind of lower than dirt sometimes. And I was having one of those evenings where I was throwing myself a massive pity party to the point where I think I was actually like weeping about this. Felt like such a loser. And I was married to Michelle. We had just got married and she turns to me and she was reading the Chronicles of Narnia at the time. And in The Horse and His Boy, there's this beautiful scene where there's this war horse. He's, he was like great and mighty and like had like princes and kings and would like charge into battle with them. But he's getting old and, and he's in Narnia and he's running with another horse and that horse gets attacked by a lion. And this war horse can't do anything about it. Spoiler, the, the lion's Aslan and it's all an object lesson. But the war horse goes to a hermit and starts complaining, just complaining about like how he's like, oh, I used to be special and I used to be great and like I should have been able to do something about it. And then the hermit responds this way. He says, my good horse, you've lost nothing but your self-conceit. No, no, cousin, don't put back your ears and shake your mane at me. If you're really so humbled as you sounded a minute ago, you must listen to sense. You're not quite the great horse you would come to think from living among the poor, dumb horses. Of course, you were cleverer and braver than them. You could hardly help being that. It doesn't follow that you'll be anyone very special in Narnia. But as long as you know you're not nobody special, you'll be a very decent sort of horse on the whole. And Michelle turned to me, and she said, Honey, you're an ordinary horse. <laughs> the worship team can come up. <laughs> but... Uh, as much as Jesus' words are usually used as comfort, they are a challenge. Because Jesus is essentially saying, all that stuff you're carrying, all that stuff you're doing that you think is so important, it probably isn't. In fact, it's probably burning you out. It's probably slowly killing you. And here's the solution. Put it down. You're an ordinary horse. If you want to survive, if you want to find rest, the place to find it is being linked, tied to my shoulder and going where I go and doing what I do, watching me, not looking in the mirror, but seeing yourself through the reflection in my eyes. You are an ordinary horse, but you are yoked to an extraordinary Lord. And the only way we do great things is when we follow him is when we go where he goes, stay where he stays, do as he does. And today we're going to be taking communion. And communion is one of those other places where I think Jesus makes, makes a similar kind of statement as he does in this yoke passage. He's essentially holding up the, the elements of life, food and drink, and saying, my sacrifice, my grace, my way are more important than these things. You need this. You do not live on bread alone. So as we come to take communion today, as, as you ponder your life and, and design it to follow Jesus, I wonder what it is you think that you need to do. I wonder who it is you thought you needed to be. I wonder how you thought it would go. And I wonder if Jesus is looking at you and saying, put it down. Put it down and come to me.
and you will find rest. Paul gives us these words in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together.